What's up guys? Oh. <laughs> What's up guys? Welcome back to Rebranded Safety. In today's episode, we're going to be talking about a noise at work civil law case at the London Royal Opera House with the head of safety of the Royal Opera House. Let's get into the podcast. The problem in safety isn't deviation, it's complexity. Health and safety has gone mad. Health and safety is trying to unpick having gone mad in the past. There's no one solution and one problem. The problem is that we are looking for one solution. Does the structure of the team allow them to flourish? Feel safe enough to be uncomfortable. The environment defines our behaviors. People aren't the problem, they're the solution. Rebranding safety, crushing a stereotype. Brought to you by Risk Fluent. What's up guys, welcome back to Rebranded Safety. Rebranded Safety does exactly what it says on the tin. We're here to challenge those perceptions and challenge those over-the-top practices of health and safety. We do that by providing you free of charge, long-form interviews like today's episode on the podcast and how-to tips and tricks, whatever you want to call them, videos over on the YouTube channel. So if you're new here watching on YouTube, hit that subscribe button and the like and all the bells and etc, etc. If you listen on a podcast, go and check out our YouTube comment content. Go check out our YouTube content once you finish walking the dog or whatever you're doing right now. In today's episode, we're talking to Dominique Parisian-Faber, the head of safety for the Royal Opera House. So, long-time listeners of the podcast might remember back a while ago, um, back when I used to kind of go through the IOSH magazine and, and kind of review content from there, um, I covered a story about the Royal Opera House and the civil court case they had brought up to them around damage from from noise at work so like damage to a musician's hearing so with the silver lining of coronavirus there are a lot of people sitting around and we got in touch with Dominique and she was happy to do us a zoom interview and come on the podcast she's giving us an insight into what it's like to be in court that actual case and then the subsequent kind of things that have come off of that like partnership with universities and some amazing work so we're going to get straight into that podcast now Dominique welcome to the podcast can you hear me? Thank you. Lovely go. to be here. <laughs> I, thought, I thought it had cut out on us there the second we pressed record. Um, why, why don't you give us a quick introduction to yourself? Obviously, um, as you know, we kind of re- reviewed uh, the Irish article that we did about a case, which we're going to kind of briefly touch on today. So people might be a bit more aware of you, but just give us an introduction into yourself and, and what you do and et cetera, et cetera. So I'm, I'm Dominique. I'm, you will guess by my accent, I'm, I'm French. Um, I'm also British, but I'm mainly French. Um, I've been in UK for over 20 years, and the first 15 years I was an EHO in Westminster City Council, so really central London, and I was part of a team that solely dealt with the entertainment sector and health and safety in the entertainment sector. So that became very quickly my specialty. Um, I was dealing with 67 theatres, at nearly over 100 nightclubs, no casinos, private members clubs. So that was really my bread and butter in enforcement as a regulator. Then five years ago, I did the jump. I joined the Royal Opera House. So I'm now the health and safety manager at the Royal Opera House and I've been doing it for five years. So yeah, this is where I'm from <laughs> and where I am. 
and and you enjoy do you enjoy the the kind of creative industry i suppose i, I get a feeling it's probably one of the, the most challenging places to be a safety professional Yes, I would not work anywhere else, I will say, in, in you know, of, of a sector. The entertainment sector is what really attracts me. When I was a kid, when I was at university, I wanted to work for the entertainment sector, not in health and safety, that was not my initial thought, but working in the creative industry was always something I absolutely wanted to do. Mm. Um, I, like, I, I like the atmosphere, I, li I like the bars, I like, um, I like everything about it. I like the fun, I think, also, because mm. it's fun. Mm. Um, and I like the challenge. Um, so it's really not an industry like no construction or manufacturing where we're very um, processed orientated. Not at all. Uh, there's not many processes in my sector. It's much more impulsive. It's, um, it's yeah, it's creative. We'll say. And in health and safety, you have to be creative to to match the to match and to be able to be able to fit in. So someone overly bureaucratic would not be able to fit in in that type of of, uh, of organization, I would say. Yeah, I was talking to um, to Jennifer from the, the National uh, National Theatre, and she was she was saying it's similar. Um, she would uh, yeah. we're talking to her at the Congress, and she was basically just saying like you know one day I have someone walk into the office saying so we want to hang someone, can we do that? And you and you know as a safety professional you're like no. And then the next day, like, we want to shoot someone, but we want to shoot someone from, you know, six meters up on stage. And, and it's just like, yeah. she, she said, you know, what you quickly kind of come to realize is no can't be the, the, the kind of initial yeah. answer. It's got to be, yes, let's see how we can yeah. do that, which I thought was fascinating. Yeah, no, I completely add. I had many challenges and sometimes you're like, oh my God, you know what? I had a scenario, yes, no, can we hang her? Because I think a beating her up doesn't work on stage. You know, the original scenario was a mobbing and they will beat her up. And then during the rehearsal, they didn't work out. They didn't have like a scenic effect they wanted. So we decided that it would be better to hang her uh, because there was a tree as a, as a set. And I was given five hours to set it up. Mm -hmm. um, and that's it's fun, but shooting, throwing people off windows also, I, I've done that quite a fair amount, or throwing people off the cliff. Um, and it's it's something that's, it's a part of a job that I enjoy the most. Mm -hmm. It's the most challenging, but is the, the one where my creativity and using, you know, in some time health and safety, uh, really concepts about protecting people is really useful. Um, but you have to think very laterally and, and that's, uh, yeah, that's the most fascinating part of the job. It's not, because the opera house, you know, is also a measure building, a measure venue. So I have also the classical health and safety issues of ma managing, you know, a measure building or Legionella and that bit is, is, is a bit boring, I will say. But what's going on stage, setting people on fire, that's really, really interesting. That's really what you know, what rocked my world in a sense. Yeah. It's where I get my fun. <laughs> <laughs> I might just edit that bit for an advert to like that you enjoy hanging people and setting them on fire. <laughs> <laughs> them on fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so be careful how you say stuff on these recorded calls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we make people fly. That's also a really good thing. I love flying artists. Uh, so when you can take them off the ground, so it's a different 
way of thinking of work at height, I will say. Mm. Um, but um, and now you find the right harnesses, equipment that fit costumes that's really, really different from what we'll be doing in the construction industry, for example. Mm. Um, but it's applying also the same similar rules in a sense, yeah. but in a very different way. Interesting. And there was another thing that, that I was interested in your, in your kind of original article, which is I've just re- reminded myself of when we were talking with, it reminded me of my kind of work within, within the NHS previously, when you mentioned about uh, doing an evacuation, like an emergency, say for a fire evacuation yeah. and the ballerinas. So they, they, you know, you have to keep them warm. Otherwise it takes some hours to get, you can't just go out and come back in. So having yeah. to think about that. And that was quite, quite closely related I think to is like with when when previously managing hospitals like you mm. can't just evacuate a patient you know he's got we've got to try and keep the patient inside as long as possible you know try telling somebody who's not uh that way inclined be like yes we know there's a fire but we want to actually keep you inside as long as possible uh, and, yeah. kind of, and then get them outside take their oxygen and it was very similar in the way that you were talking about taking like the the kind of foil blankets. I can't remember the proper name for them. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was fascinating. Like you, to yeah. keep them warm. Yeah. The, the best the best evacuation we had was during an opera, and they were all in costume. And people in Covent Garden on the piazza, the tourists thought that there was um, uh, I just know how do you call it like these uh, dancing mob things where oh, people like really start to. Flash, it mob, was flash dance, I can't remember. Flash mob, yes. Yeah. Uh, so we had like a gathering of hundreds of tourists around <laughs> us thinking that something is going to start, something is going to happen. And it was just an evacuation of the opera house. That was quite fun. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. I love that. The, the only kind of story I've got to relate to that is I went on a rugby tour once with uh, with, mm. with, with a, a, obviously the rugby team and we were in fancy dress mm. and one of our friends was a copper and um, is, is a copper and um, and as we were leaving the, the hotel to go to the next pub a, um, there was another copper from the local area trying mm. to arrest, arrest a, a quite drunken man and was, was not winning This obviously this drunken man was quite strong and this poor police officer was really struggling so my friend who's a trained police officer just helped yeah. him but my friend was dressed in full fancy dress as a hippie. So this poor guy got arrested by a copper dressed up as a hippie. And what were we doing? All of us standing there with our phones going, because, you know, we're just lads. That's the, that's the only story I've got that can relate to that, which is probably no. not as uh, professional. <laughs> anyway, right. I want to talk about this, this kind of noise at work, which, you know, let's... Yeah. Um, when, when we had our introduction chat and our familiarization chat, you said noise, not a word we can use in your industry, which I thought was quite interesting. So I'll call it noise at work, but you'll call it sound. 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 Yeah, sound. Yeah. But you, you can imagine in terms of psychology, if you want to engage with people that produce that noise, I will mm-hmm. say the uh, in, in a legal term, I mean, it's not a good start to talk about their noise, where it's something that they train for 20 years and it's their bread and butter. Uh, it's not, um, and the, the noise it produces is actually very beautiful. You know, it's mm-hmm. Beethoven and it's Wagner. And, and so if you start to talk about noise with them, you're not going to get very far in the conversation. So we have to use words that is engaged aging with them and, and definitely sound is something positive and actually if you look at purely the definition noise is unwanted what we produce at the opera is not unwanted 
Mm. No, people pay for it and pay quite a lot of money for it. Mm. So we only talk about sound. We talk about noise if we talk about a drill, of course. Yeah. But when it comes to singing voice or musical instruments, we talk about sounds and not not noise. However, however, the regulation doesn't make any difference for it. Mm. The uh, the noise at uh, the noise at work regs do apply to us and do apply to singing and. Uh, musicians because they are employees and uh, so the legislation does not make a difference as such um, between noise and sound but let's talk about sound not noise yeah. I think no, it's I like much that. nicer I like it I like this it's, it's kind of beautiful in a way that you, you kind of change that and also acknowledge that there are sounds that we don't want and there are sounds that we do want but <laughs> but I think from a point of view of being a good safety professional is acknowledging that my conversation stops the second i call it noise like i'm not going to get anywhere because you, you essentially you kind of pee them off in a way don't you, you offend yeah, them completely. it's a noise and then you don't get the end result of what you want which is them to be engaged mm. in your conversation so was that was that something was when did that kind of conversation happen with you was that when was the first time did you say noise to, to a musician and they went oh, excuse me it's, it's sound, or, or like, I'd love to know. Um, actually, it happened even before the case where we start to talk about sound rather than noise. Mm. Um, I don't know, four years ago, maybe we start to talk about sound. We changed the name of our policies. We changed, uh, um, yeah, I was, even before the case, we started, because we realized, you know, you, you pee off people and you also devalue them. Imagine that I'm talking about your product, you know, your podcast, and I'm like, like all the noise you make, you know. <laughs> it's probably true. <laughs> it's, it's not, if I use the word noise talking about your work, you know, clearly I put this kind of a moral judgment in a sense about yeah. it's not yeah. of high value. Mm. If I'm talking about the sound, it's... Um, it's less of a moral or value in it. So, um, yeah, if you want to engage with someone, I'm saying all the noise you make when it's uh, you know, a soprano that's been singing for 30 years, it's not, it's not really valuing your work. So, uh, no, that's, that's changed happened, yeah, three, four years ago, I would say. Yeah. It's been gradual. It's been gradual, but clearly oh, okay. it felt needed. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I just had these kind of visions of you talking to like this professional musician about the noise at work and, and they got really huffety and stormed out of the room and it was going to be this really but, EastEnders kind of story. Obviously, not. But in, interestingly, they never thought that he applied to them in a sense, even in, once, in one hand, yes, they realise, yes, we have to comply, but in another sense, they never really thought it applies to them because, because they don't make noise. Yeah, they produce true. a beautiful sound that people pay for. Mm. Um, so there was a bit of um, when we all have this dichotomy where, in one part of you understand yes, it applies to me, another part of you is like no, I can't be. And and, and the case is a lot about that. So do you want to uh, just give a bit tiny brief uh, history on the case? Yeah. So during um, I, I can't even remember the dates now, but roughly. Oh, uh, will be five, six years ago during um, five, six years ago during a rehearsal of Wagner. So it's a rehearsal time, and it's a very famous piece of Wagner, uh, Die Valkyrie. Um, I can't sing at all, but if you look, it's a very common piece. Everybody knows it. Um, a musician is a viola player 
complained of ear, ear pain and then later on um, he left the rehearsal at that point on that day and a few years later things evolved and we end up in a civil court for a permanent hearing damage linked to that specific rehearsal. So that was in March 2018 when we went to the court the first time. So it's a civil court. Um, the judgment went in favour of the plaintiff, uh, the, the, the player, and the initial judgment was, um, it, it was a very important case for two levels. One, the noise at work regulation had never, never been tested in court for our uh, industry. So that was a first. And the other thing that was really different, it was the acoustic shock, what he claimed, um, that also had never been tested uh, in our environment and never been tested at, in courts in UK. It's been tested in court in Australia for call centers. So that was the reason the case was really important. The initial judgment came in his favor and one of the major part of our judgment was saying that Anybody getting in the pit when they're playing needs to wear earring protection at all the time. Every player, including conductors, uh, music staff, everybody needs to wear ear protection, earring protection all the time if it's slightly above 85 LEQ you know, over eight hours. Um, so that was, I think, the, the part of the judgment that was really, really difficult for us um, because most of our repertory, ballet like opera, is above 85 LEQ. Let's face it, it's just, I would say 80% is above. Mm. Um, so we appealed, the opera appealed, and a year later we were sitting again in the appeal court, um, central London, so in March 2019. The judgment was again in favor of the plaintiff, but the judges changed massively their position on hearing protection and agreed that a musician will wear hearing protection when they feel it's needed. So it was not compulsory at all the time. Um, so even it's, um, I know the opera lost again, but the second judgment, the appeal judgment was much, much better, really a massive improvement. And so we were really pleased with the second judgment, even if we lost, but we were actually really released that um, hearing protection was not made mandatory. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's in a nutshell, that that's the case uh, and it's so acoustic shock and noise rigs in a civil court it must, um, have been quite a, it must have been quite a shock to to see that that claim come through like you were saying it's a first it's never been tested in in the civil court so there's no it's not like this was a common claim you know i think a lot of safety professionals <laughs> would be like or oh, it's another slipped and tripped claim or do you know yeah. what i mean like but but for an, a, a noise at work claim to be brought in the Royal Opera must have been a shock for you and, and the rest of the business initially. Yeah, it, it was really, um, yeah, it was really, all the industry was really worried. And um, the case, you know, in court, we were five days, so which is a really long time, mm -hmm. sitting for five days in court. And, and the courts are very old buildings, so take occasions if you ever go to court, because the seats are, imagine it's a church seat um, we when you sit you no know, six hours on it for five days in a row, so it's super uncomfortable. Um, and the um, the court process is very adversarial, so it's very emotional in some time. You can't say anything because there's a barrister's talk, um, and there's some you know, witnesses. It's not pleasant. It's absolutely not pleasant for both sides. 
you know, I will say, I've been in court before, uh, quite a lot actually, but in criminal courts, and I was always in the, um, uh, as an enforcer, so I was always in the prosecution side. Mm. Um, and when you're in enforcement role and you're in the prosecution side in court, your chance of winning are really high because we won't take a case until we got nearly 75% chance of winning. Yeah. So it's a very different feeling. And it's um, because you, you know there, roughly, you know there, you're going to win. Um, civil court, and in a very adversarial and a very complex case, it's very emotional. It's, it's very different. Um, and you left out quite frustrated, quite drained. It's really tiring. Um, so, and at the beginning, it's very much like love, anger, and overjudging, and understand that. Or you get in love, kind of petty type of arguments about a small thing mm. um, because you know your case inside out. And it's um, the science of sound is complicated. Our barristers are excellent, but they're not scientists necessarily, mm. and they don't necessarily have a best understanding and explain that to the judge make it even tougher um so sometimes you wish you could step out and or you wish you could say something and and so on so no it's it's not it's not pleasant it's a really unpleasant process i would say and, i don't wish it to anybody no and it is it's something that's kind of i think i think some professionals kind of got very lucky in their lives and probably can avoid it uh, and then yeah. some, some kind of have a case like that. And I find, uh, well, uh, in my experience, when it comes to the civil claims, it, it's, it's taken out of our hands a lot with uh, insurers or yeah. just pay out or the business or just pay out, you know, normally the insurance. Yeah. Um, so I actually think, you know, it's, it's something that's becoming a rarity now in our industry, or, well, in our profession. It, and I suppose it does depend on where you work and what the claim is, mm. but with that kind of claim culture we have now, I'd, I'd be surprised if, you know, if every safety professional said, oh yeah, I've been to court, I would, I would be surprised at that. I think a lot of people haven't. I, 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 yeah, no, nice. Yeah, and I think for any professional that listen to that podcast and is going to go to court for criminal or civil, it's really important to go to the court before, uh, to familiarize yourself with a, uh, with a, uh, the process is quite theatrical court and it's very so the courts are open to the public and it's really important that you know spend a day before your own case to go and sit in courts and hear other stories and see how things happen because i think if on the top of that stress of of dealing with your own case if on the top of that you also need to stress about how you will hear when you will be able to talk where you sit uh, which camp is which camp you know it's not mm. like a football or rugby team where they wear different colors not at all they all wear the same so <laughs> um so understanding all that that system is really worth to have that knowledge before going to court there's also excellent training to be a witness in court and it's not a training to tell you what you have to say they don't get in the content but they get they help you with the delivery and when I was in, uh, as a regulator, uh, I did a lot of training like this, which helped you to speak publicly, helped you to speak to the judge, to explain things, uh, to keep your nerves. Um, and that I will say, if you ever, ever have to go to court, it's essential to do both things, you know, to be trained as a witness and to be familiar, to familiarize yourself with the court system. And don't wait the day you turn up in court to, um, 
to actually uh, get to know how it works. Uh, although it's, it's too much to get on on the first day. Mm-hmm. And especially in criminal court, it's very often the case, you will have a very short time to make an impact. I'm talking of 20 minutes, half an hour. Yeah. Uh, and so you need to make that impact in a very, very, very short time. And if you're not prepared for it, then you will mess up. Mm. So uh, preparation is essential, essential for it. I think I think yeah. that's, that's some, actually I think that's some really good advice. Like, and and I've I've worked quite closely with um, with the fire service for a couple of years now. And um, one one story he or one of the gentlemen I work with quite a lot is always says is, um, you know, go in the court. It affects you in ways that you just thought would never affect you. And the one story he he gets gives is that when they first did a um, so because he's an enforcer, works for the fire service, they they yeah. have like barristers and and they did training basically on exactly what you've just said and how to be in that environment. And he just basically did you know you see it on the telly like a fake court case in in a room and they they basically did it like that and. Yeah. Um, and he said the one thing that re- that re- he really struggled with was when asked a question, you're not talking to the in his experience. The person that asks the question, you have to turn to the judge. And exactly. Talk, which is something exactly nobody would be. You, I think everyone would really struggle with that because you naturally yeah. react by you know somebody goes so James blah, 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 and you go well and it, oh no hang on uh, well your honour and it's like that's yeah. that's a real difficult thing and I think that's really good advice. No, completely. There's, there's a lot of tricks like this. Uh, there's also a lot of tricks that you can learn to, to win some time to think, because you need to think on your feet. Mm. Um, and my first, first time in court, I, I, I like to tell the story. You know, it was the beginning of LinkedIn. And oh, um, LinkedIn. Oh, right, yeah. Sorry. It was the beginning of LinkedIn. I just had created my account and I was very naive. And I accepted everybody that wanted to be my friend, <laughs> even if I didn't know them. And then came the court and suddenly the first thing that the judge on the other side said that I was incompetent. And he, the judge, that, that barrister listed my, um, he knew a lot about me, about where I got trained, that fact that I was trained in France, so I didn't have the right qualification, that I should not be in that job, that I was not competent, that I didn't have enough experience. And I was like, where did this come from? And then I realized I'd accepted him as a friend on my LinkedIn, Whoa. naively. And that's the first thing that came to, first time I was in court, it was the first five minutes. And it was about, okay. you know, it, it's the first thing that they will do is just like, you know, if you can demonstrate you're not competent, then the case collapse. Yeah. But that's the end of the job, you know, it, it's great for them. Uh, but it completely took me by surprise and I was superbly naive, I will say. Mm. I mean, after that, I did clean my LinkedIn and every solicitor's got kicked out. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've all been caught by by some form of social media bite, biting us in the butt. But it, yeah. it, interesting point. And again, when I've done some, I've delivered some training in partnership with a fire service, and and they say, and and one of the conversations we've had is like, well, you see it in the films all the time about discrediting witnesses, and it's not about the evidence that they give; it's about attacking that person and trying to say yeah. they're not competent to bring this advice. And 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 he said that's not just for the films or the TV shows; like that stuff actually happens. And, and yeah. your story just kind of solidified. Oh, completely. Yeah. It's tough. It's really tough to be criticised, you know, in public like this. It's yeah. really, really tough. Especially it's, if uh, that's the first time, the first thing they the say is time. you're that's incompetent. My... Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hello to you too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, 
I just, uh, yeah, you can learn from it, I will say. Yeah, fascinating. Well, yes. That's a really good insight, actually. Thank you. What that, I want to kind of just kind of focus on that, that initial judgment of wearing PPE um, and, and kind of, and then it getting not, not overturned, but getting adjusted um, to, mm. to, to what it is now. And then probably where you are now with that kind of as well. So like the initial reaction within from, from the musicians themselves must have been like potentially career ending. Really? Yeah, I can't no, imagine completely. With, with that stuff. Yeah, no, completely. I think there was love, uh, fear, and love worries amongst musicians. Because the noise at work only applies to employees, I will some employers in UK, their way of dealing with it was to get rid of the employees and having only freelancers. That's one way of managing the situation. And of course, musicians were really worried that the opera might take that position. We've got, I would say, 90 um, not, don't quote me on that. I think 90 musicians, I forgot now, being on furlough, but in fact, um, we've got 90 musicians and we've got, um, I will say, maybe equivalent numbers of choristers. Okay. And they are employees, they're full time employees. And so, therefore, the noise at work applied to them. And if we were using freelancers, we would not have to worry about it so much. Um, that's, and so, that's an interesting point because I think that ties in quite closely with how the construction industry operates as everybody is self-employed yeah. but the duty is still there like you still have that duty to your contractors so surely the Royal Opera House would still have to do reasonable checks to yeah completely but not at all to the same level for example the provision of PPE would not apply to freelancers Oh, right. Freelancers need to come with their own PPE. Yeah. That, that's not an example. Um, the the way you monitor will be slightly different, I guess. Also, I'm not been really been in that scenario. But the people that perform for us are our employees. Apart from the guest artists, the guest yeah. artists are um, I've got different type of contracts. But everybody else, dancers, I will say also our, our employees. Um, so therefore, noise at work applies. Mm-hmm. And the, the easiest way would have been, you know, I will say, um, for some companies, and what happened in some places following that judgment, people lost their employment. And so there was a real, real worry. The second worry, I think, which was uh, important is um, our musicians tend to uh, be well advanced in the career. They are, because they are the, one of the best musicians in UK, uh, there's people that have I've got a strong you know, musical background, so therefore they are uh, of a certain uh, group. And the way they're trained is without hearing protection. If suddenly you impose hearing protection, they can't play at the level requested them to play. They actually cannot play, is what they tell us. So the worry is suddenly you impose hearing protection, but they may lose their job because they can't play. Mm. You know, if, you, if you need to play at a certain level and that's what guarantees your employment, and then you put in a PPE and they can't play at that level, then they were worried, well, if you can't play, where, where, what am I going to do? Will it jeopardize my employment? So there was also that, 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 that things that were coming in, 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 um, in the mix. The other one is our conductors. Uh, we've got you no know, permanent conductors, we've got only two of them, but many of our conductors are um, guests. So, um, and, for a conductor to be a guest conductor at the opera, it's um, 
it, it's it's one of the best stage in the world and, and it's really a stages thing and so when you're a conductor and you're a guest and conductor you're not going to compromise on your artistic uh level and imagine a conductor with hearing protection then it's never heard of no conductors wear hearing protection and so you've got one of the top you know uh, baroque conductor john gardiner imagine him he's, he's a character i say okay john gardiner you know, can come and play at our orchestra but you would need to wear your hearing protection and they will not come to play for us we will also reduce our pool of potential amazing artists to come and play with us because they will refuse the conditions that we give them. So there was all those things that are coming into, into the balance, you know. How do we stay where we are, you know, one of the best performing orchestra in the world, so with the top musician in the world, playing acoustically, this is what we are, and we also play as close to the original version. So again, if I go back to Wagner, Wagner was made to play by between 80 to 100 musicians. That's what Wagner created this piece of music for that number of musicians. That's what Wagner did. And because we are the Royal Opera House, we play as close to as the original idea of Wagner. You can play Wagner with 20 musicians. Yeah, it's possible. Some, some orchestra have done it. But if we do that, we would not be the Royal Opera House because that's not our identity. And it's how do you manage that keeping your identity, keeping who you are, and same time meeting the law. And that's that's a difficult balance. That's a very very difficult balance. Um, that's yeah, that's just some of the some of the balancing thing. Another thing that I always thought also that was discussed in court that was really interesting is like, why do you play loud stuff? Just don't play loud stuff, you know. So. Um, in orchestral music, as you go uh, as you go further in time, music becomes quieter. So Handel, 16, 15, 16, is much quieter than more recent stuff. Mm. As as the music ex, uh, comes uh, in time through the centuries, it gets louder and louder. Um, so Handel, it's harpsichord and small groups, you know, it's much quieter than Wagner. So should we ban everything that is a bit loud so that's a way a form of sensor you know forget we never play you uh, know uh lady of Menzik, we never play uh, uh some uh, some some newer i would say newer wagner is it's, it's, yeah <laughs> he, he wasn't on top of the pops <laughs> <laughs> yeah but you know how do we select our repertory yeah. can we select our repertory you know by sound level in a sense, and we can't move on past the 16th century. You know, it's just we have to play on the old stuff. Mm. Uh, that would be really sad for the opera world. It means no more Verdi, mm. you know, even Puccini. Forget no more Puccini because it's too loud. Which, which um, pe people want to listen to, don't they? Like, like yeah, should... you know, our best, our best sell is Puccini and Verdi. That's that's what we sell the most. You know, it's mm. Otello, it's Madame Butterfly, it's it's mm. La Bohème, it's Tosca. And, and all that are more recent opera. They are not the old stuff. Um, so you and just, so you've just kind of come out of like a bit, probably, would you say one of the most stressful court cases you've ever been involved in? And then, and then you're like, right, okay, cool. We've, we've got a decision. Now you've got to deal mm -hmm. with all of this as well. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And other thing that is also interesting when, uh, I'd like to talk a bit about money, for example, 
um, to, to play in a way we play, so the copyright of that musical arrangement, we own it. The opera owns its own copyrights. Okay. If you change the orchestration to reduce the number of strings, to reduce um, yeah, the number of players, so to make less sound, then you need a new orchestration, then you need a new copyright. Wow. So the but, implications of any kind of change that you put in place, it's just huge, absolutely huge. It's huge. And, and when I'm talking about copyright, I'm not talking in hundreds of pounds, I'm talking in thousands, wow. the cost of it, to own that copyright. So again, we are charity and the Royal Prowse is a charity. And it's not saying that um, we want to protect people with, because we don't have the money, but in some time, you know, uh, we have to put uh, finance in the balance. Mm. There's few things we simply cannot afford. We absolutely cannot afford. So how how are you kind of coming to that? Like all these things that you're saying, you know, those kind of complications of of potential mitigations. Did you know all of those implications, or were you in a room with people and just throwing stuff out there, being like, "Well, we obviously can't just not play Wagner, Ra Wagner, for Wagner." God, I'm showing my yeah. incompetence now. Yeah. Uh, Wagner, can we, or or, 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 or something like that? Or, or, or you sit in a room and saying. Uh, could we could we reduce the amount of musicians and then somebody saying no because that'll affect our copyrights like was it which is like a collaborative approach with the it's very 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 collaborative very collaborative um it's yeah it's it's engaging with uh, the creative world with the music staff with musicians with uh the direction the artistic direction of the opera um it's involving all those people because everybody's got a bit of knowledge that comes into the balance Mm. Um, some some few things had to be challenged because some people came from a position where that cannot be changed, that would never be changed, that's fixed. And some bits had to be challenged, but um, some things, it's, it's something, you know, as a health and safety person, I knew nothing about copyrights law, I knew nothing about the history of music, for example, that was not part of my education as a health and safety person. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I had to learn about it. And, and that is you know, part of also the pleasure, I will say. It's learning all that little uh, intrinsic knowledge of, of uh, how an opera is put together or ballet is put together. Um, so that's, no, that has been good at the same time. We interrupt this broadcast to bring you a shameless sponsorship clip. In all seriousness, guys, we partnered up with DRM Group. You know David McLean, he's been on the podcast time and time again. We absolutely support his message and he's got a brand new online course to help you. I'm gonna let him tell you all about it now. The brain can be trained to think and behave differently, to think in more positive and optimistic ways. And there are steps that you can take to train your brain to feel good for good. And we call this lasting positive change. Through our 16-day programme, which includes daily videos and action sheets, taking you no longer than 15 minutes to complete a day. You will learn how to move away from thoughts of anger, hopelessness and frustration to a place of mental well-being and positivity. Okay guys, so if you're interested, you can click the link below and get a discount, special rebranded safety discount, full disclosure, we get a little bit kickback from that. So at the same time as improving your mental health, you can support your favorite health and safety podcast YouTube channel. I'll let you get back into the content. It sounds to me like, you know, when, when I kind of envision it, that, that kind of collaborative approach that you're talking about, and that's why I asked it was like, that that's what safety should look like you know is a room of people 
that that know their subject that are involved you know stakeholders you know uh, yeah. that in this process you've got people, somebody representing the musicians or the musicians themselves the composers the the look the lawyers the copyright people the yeah. the, the finance people you know all yeah. these people in a room and and you know I, if anyone says to me you know what what does safety actually do it's all about clipboard it's like no it's we're just facilitators of a conversation mm-hmm. like you know, the way i i kind of look at it is like professional devil's advocate i'm just the person that sits in a room i throw an idea onto the table and let you all discuss it and that's it that's, yeah, it, that's what no, i completely. do and that's what exactly no, no, i, I agree like. i think also i think part of our role in health and safety is also to tr- for me, I felt to translate in a way the science and the law in, in terms that the artistic people could understand it. It's quite interesting that most of the artistic groups, I mean, the knowledge of sound and music is amazing. It's just like nothing I could know. I would never compare myself to them. But when it comes to the science of sound, well, understanding the difference between DBA, DBC, peak, LEQ, and so on, oh, that's not part of the world at all, at all. Mm. They absolutely, they could not understand dosimetry, what, what we were measuring. Um, and making the science available to them and, and in, in terms that they can understand, so they understand where, where it clash, in a sense, where, where are difficulties. So that's also things that was really much part of my of my role, uh, because in health and safety we tend to be, I would say, well, definitely for our team more scientific minded, mm. um, and being able to talk about research, you know, uh, material on, in terms of material research, you no know, absorption coefficient and diffusion and reflection and um, understand the science of sounds. Um, that's things that are to package in such way that uh, that was they were engaging with it mm. because to be able to apply the knowledge that work regs you need to understand that part mm. absolutely and so i would i did a lot of training on that with people that are excellent musicians I many they, they have so much to learn from them but when it comes to the science part is i think it was bringing my part to it to, to be able to bridge those gaps mm. love that you 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 mentioned in in the kind of the article in Irish about tweaking your kind of risk assessment process to take into account that was it was it the impact on the creativity or, or, or that kind yeah, of yeah it that came out of um, an event in court where I remember where the um, one of the witness was mentioning um, the creative no the what was it the the, the benefit of um, the creative benefit of playing in an orchestra. And the judge asked you know, what they are. And it could not be spelled out. Mm. What is the benefit of playing in an orchestra? What's the benefit of an, a live orchestra music? Why do we do it? Was that, was that from and, a point of view of, of kind of trying to, trying to put across the social value of, of yeah. like to defend, right, okay, I'm with you, I'm with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that could not be really be spelled out. And so a risk assessment only look at the negative bit, at you know what could go wrong. But in the law, if you look at what a risk assessment is, it's a balancing act between doing what you do because you need to do it, and um, but also minimizing risk. But doing what we do and what the benefits of it were not clear. We absolutely in court we could not spell them out. What is the benefit of playing the way we play? Mm. Um, 
And so the risk-benefit analysis look at it. And we did it with Middlesex University as part of a, a bit of a research we did on playgrounds. And I love the analogy. You know, play, I don't know if you've got kids, but my, if you've got kids... One, my first one's on the way, currently. Oh, ah, all right. Congratulations. About four months oh, good. Congratulations. Thank but if, if you look at, at, at a playground, uh, you cannot make a playground safe because kids need risk to be able to grow and develop. Yes. It, take a room, an empty room, put a few objects and put kids in it. They will build the risk to play. Mm. And it's really it's part of uh, developing as a child. You cannot develop a child without taking a risk. But that's kind of... So uh, local authority and schools had massive struggles to uh, risk assess playgrounds. Because how do you have a playground that is without any risk when actually a risk needs to be part of a playground? So there's a playground association or something similar uh, that developed a risk benefit analysis by uh, in agreement with the HSE and they developed a template and it was more not about the template but the thinking behind. It's like, you no, know, why do we need a slide without protection? Why do we need an edge without protection? What is the benefit for a child to play in that environment? And which protection we put, you know, instead of to be concrete, we have put actually a soft landing pad but we didn't you know they did not protect the edge because that little edge is important for five years old mm. um and and, uh, and uh, it's the same philosophy it's the same model that we used for the orchestra the difficulty that you don't want to do is you don't want to justify your pool practice because there's some benefits absolutely not it's not the idea you do not you know justify doing nothing because there's some benefits Mm. Uh, that's not the idea, but it's more to be very clear on what's the benefit of doing one thing one way and how, and which control measure we put. For example, will be um, what's the benefit for orchestra to play quite close to each other? Why don't we put three meters between each other? No, uh, but then when you look at the science of music and sound, an orchestra plays by listening to each other. If you put too much distance between each other, then they can't play as a, as, as a, as a unity. That's a benefit. You cannot put, if there's a kind of a, a optimum distance between them to be grouped. I mean, it's like a rugby. Imagine playing rugby. I know you're a rugby fan. Imagine playing rugby in a massive field so you've got no collision. I mean, it's, It'd be too far so, to run, let alone, let alone <laughs> trying to hit someone. I struggle so on, a, a, on a normal size pitch. There's a benefit of a limited size to have a cohesion as a group. Mm. And same for an orchestra. And, and that's one of the benefits. So how do you manage? Because more you put distance people, more you protect them from the noise from each other. Um, but that's up to a certain point. If you put too much distance, then they can't play with each other. Mm. And, and that's what a, a risk-benefit analysis, it analyzes the benefit of playing close to each other. Mm. And it's finding that optimum distance between players. That's your one example. No, I like it. I, I, how, how how did you find like kind of kind of use it? Do you still you still using that kind of model now? And and how and how? Uh, yeah, you, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. How, is, is it kind what, of what, does it really help the kind of general kind of operations of a safety professional? Like that help you with that balance and that. Um, what it did help is engagement. 
I will say that most of the creative team had never ever read a risk assessment. They were existing and they were risk assessment, but um, they never had any interest because risk assessment only talk about problems. Um, when we did a risk benefit analysis for the first time ever, had music directors making comments on it and actually having read it. Yeah. Because suddenly there was something positive, there was something um, that they could relate to. Um, and so that, that was the risk assessment, uh, the benefit risk assessment was a massive engagement tool with the creative part of the organizations. They engaged with it, they suddenly had some interest. Um, it was also, I don't think that the risk benefits analysis exercise in itself changed the way we did things as such. Mm. Because also we did quite late in the process, we did well after the, the, the court. So what had to be changed had been changed in a sense. But it was also putting more clarifications why we do things and why things were not done. Such as mm -hmm. the, why, do we, why we don't put three meters between players. It's yeah. not. So was that kind of like, um, so, so like from your point of view, it must have felt like, well, we, we did this anyway. I, if, if you'd have told me we couldn't separate the players because that would affect the business, you would have been like, well, okay, we won't do it then. Because that, that's kind of inherent in a safety professional's training, isn't it? We don't want to stop business. We, we yeah. want to find that balance in that, like you say. But so, so the rev, the kind of, uh, the, the kind of revolution or the, you know, the eye opening for you was actually just those people getting involved more yeah. than it was the actual process like how it changed for them as opposed to for you if that, does that yeah, make sense? I'll, yeah not completely i think it's the, the, risk, the risk benefit analysis was um more for revolution for me was how i was able to engage with them on a formal bureaucratic piece of paper risk assessment which so far they are felt very remote and not interested by it and suddenly had their interest so that was you know, that's the major thing um and that was in partnership with universities. So you partnered up yeah. with some universities off the back of this. And I know you did some some other work um, with, with yeah. them. Do you want to take us through some of the other stuff you did? I know some of it is just fascinating. Yeah, so we had a few universities that came to our rescue, I will say. <laughs> um, I, I love academics on the... I think we need to use in our profession. We need to use them a lot more. We got we got so much to learn from them, and they have a lot to learn from us. It's a very much an exchange. Middle Middlesex University was one of our partners for this week's benefit, but also a lot of informal conversation. One of our major uh, partner is London South Bank University. The, they've got um, a unit in acoustic acoustic material and intelligent material. And what we were looking at is the environment in which the players play the pit is not ideal in acoustic term. So in terms of diffusion, reflection and absorption, um, it's, it's not, yeah, it's, it's not an ideal. And you need more, it needs more diffusion in scientific terms, but diffusion in a traditional way, it's massive panels. You know, they are like 25, at least 25 centimeters deep and you put them on the side. A pit is already quite a small space. So if you lose 25 centimeters on every side, then you reduce even more space and you put the players in closer to each other. So you lose the benefit of increasing diffusion. So that was not an option. And what they, they worked on is creating a diffusion panel that are centimeters deep, roughly. So 
In addition to the, to the Middlesex University, so we've got a partnership with London South Bank University on uh, acoustic material. And they, they developed some new diffusion material for us, which are much thinner than the traditional diffusion material, which would fit in our pit. But we don't want to install it unless it's tested and it works, it works well. So we have also a different partnership with Edinburgh University that has got a special research department in virtual reality for many for games. They were, the main business is games. So video games have developed a lot of technology for uh, virtual reality uh, for visually but also in terms of sounds. Uh, where, so now in games, you know where the sound comes from, the texture of that sound is much better and much closer to the reality than it was you know, 10 years ago, I will say. Mm. Um, so Edinburgh University is testing the material created by London of Bank University in a virtual reality world to know if it actually it will make a difference. So they came to the opera, they took love measuring, they like, so they created a 3D print in a sense, wow. uh, virtual reality of our auditorium, of our pit. And then they're using modeling, computer modeling, to test out the different um, diffusion and acoustic panels that could help us. So that's kind of a bit of a research we've, we've done. And that's fascinating. I love visual reality. It's, it's just like, it's mad. It's just, it was the presentation by Edinburgh University when they came uh, to, to show us the results. And you could visually see the sound waves, how they were moving in our pit, in our auditorium. That was, I've never seen anything like this. It was magical. It was absolutely mind-blowing. Wow. Yeah. So that's one example of partnership where it led to um, not, not a bad thing. <laughs> yeah, that was amazing. Like it must have been. Did you did you have to put the old goggles on when they did the presentation, or was it like a video, or did you have to put? No, it was like a video. They did show us a video wow. of um, sound, uh, some diffusion. So it was like uh, a model of of the auditorium and the pit, and it was just yeah. watching the waves and how they're moving, bouncing off the walls yeah. and stuff. That's yeah, and they used um, they use um, I think a, a bit of Puccini for testing. Oh wow! <laughs> they use a small part of a Puccini opera to test it. It was really really nice. It was just like um, yeah, they placed the orchestra, the, the musician in the orchestra for each musician. It was just uh, it was mind blowing, absolutely mind blowing. Um, how how so did that? kind of educate you to be able to do your job going forward from that then did you did you feel like you're in a much better position to be able to do what you need to do it, i think it's um the science of sound and some acoustic and room acoustic is, is still in development and it could be it could help us massively um and but it's very hard to because it's complex science, I think it's to give, to find the tools that make it accessible to lay people, uh, including the creative teams, and to, to, to be able to you know, to progress to the matter, because otherwise it's very conceptual. And yeah. you don't want also, you know, you don't want to spend money for something you don't have a proof that it will work, as mm -hmm. simple as that. And how do you establish that proof? Um, and will it make a real difference? So that's no the benefit of a partnership i would mm. say definitely and university loves it 
absolutely love it. We have the first case where they actually can come on the ground and see a direct worked application of the, of the tools and what they have developed, which I've always been using in game. That's all. The only thing they ever used it, it's in games. And suddenly it comes to a real world, which is great. And, and did you use those panels? Did, did, it, did, it, did it tell you that those panels were good or bad, the original ones that were thinner? I can't tell you at the moment. There's a lot of, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of intellectual property and uh, uh, discussions and so on. But what I will say, it's at the moment, but it's, still, no, it's still in development, it's still in research. It's looking good. Wow. It's looking very good. So how long has so, this been going now then? This is, this is years and years of work then. When did this all start? The case starting in 2018 in, in court. Uh, we were in March 2018. So uh, wow. the case was in discussion with us at least for five years before he went to court. So I believe it's 2012. Yeah. We started the, when we, we had the claim. I don't believe it's, I believe it's 2012, maybe 2011. Mm. So all that research and those ideas starting from that time roughly wow when we start when we started to see the challenge coming love resources we didn't wait to you know march 2018 to do anything about it huh? uh, we we worked on it very early on um noise at work regulation came into our sector in 2008 so the development in that field has been yeah i will say uh, post 2008 for, of course but for us mainly from 2011 i will say where we started to do a lot of research and development in that field so this has really dominated your your kind of time for the fair, fair few years yes completely yeah. completely wow. completely <laughs> <laughs> nice it's a bit of a relief to talk about fire or something <laughs> 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 uh, yeah it could be <laughs> So, so, so kind of if I mean if, if you can tell us like what 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 kind of mitigations have we got in place now then to kind of manage that risk in the time being as you're kind of becoming more and more educated obviously that will evolve and that's the beauty yeah. of it but like r r right now what what's going on and how are you kind of managing that risk because it's just fascinating um, but that's it's inherent in your product isn't it which is just completely yeah. so one thing that we manage much better than we did 15 years ago, 10 years ago, it's the long-term planning of a, a season of um, our, which piece of music I've chosen. So, because an orchestra will rehearse one thing and play something else in the evening. So you could be uh, rehearsing for Puccini and then playing Verdi um, in the evening. So, uh, and so now that combination of what they play and for how long they play is a lot better analyzed at the planning stage okay. so we we don't have this uh, we avoid this hot week where there's a week where there's like two very long piece uh two very long loud piece so uh, and sometimes it happens for example we can have um supplement uh musicians that can come and play a bit that is too loud for uh, one specific section because not necessarily loud for everybody could be very quiet for the string but very loud for the uh, for the trumpet you know so every piece of music will have this hot spot in a sense so in terms of planning um but we do that a lot lot better we also have 10 years of noise monitoring so we know for the classic piece, we know their sound level. We know what they are, in a sense. A new piece is a different story, and that's, again, it's a topic by itself. 
mm. when we commission a new piece of music. But for the classical one, which is most of our repertory, I would say 80%, even maybe 90% of our repertory, we know what they are. So mm. we can plan in advance and plan the schedule of our musicians in advance. So that's uh, that's one of the major improvements. Then it's about orchestra arrangements. So how do you decide on the layout of players, how many players, with the copyright issue, with the artistic decisions. But I think health and safety has become much more important in the balance, in that decision. You know, where the string sits, where the harp will be, where the piano will be. Um, that was not so much part of the conversation pre-2010, I will say. Now is really, really much, much part of the conversation when they decide on, we're going to play Verdi and, you know, it's going to be 85 musicians and this is where people will sit. Wow. Health and safety now comes part of that conversation, which was not before. So, mm. again, this is where uh, one of the improvements. The, I think that what may have played the major, major improvement for us is compliance uh, with hearing protection. And our musicians with ears have adapted and accepted more and more wearing more than the hearing protection. Um, and it's been and we get there by two, for two reasons. One, technology got better. So the, the quality of this hearing protection had got a lot, lot better, a lot cleverer. Mm. Um, in 2008, frankly, when the noise network came to force, we gave, I said, we, the industry tend to give, uh, had given to the musicians hearing protection that was given to construction sites. It's like, yeah. here it is, like take that in. They, yeah, exactly. We've not much consideration for their needs. Um, so because of that, I think we built massive wall with our musicians. They were seeing health and safety as something that stopped them doing their work. Mm. Um, and technology has improved in terms of quality of hearing protection. And a lot in the last two, three years, I will say, there's a lot more clevering protection the last two, three years than 10 years ago. So that has been uh, easier for musicians to wear hearing protection. The other bit is education, education, and involving musicians in understanding their hearing and understanding which hearing protection for what. I would say all our musicians have got at least, I would say, three type of hearing protection in their pockets. Wow. At least three. Because they will use the hearing protection for different things. Um, they may want to use a hearing protection because we've got uh, gunshot on stage, because we've got thunder, uh, because we've got something falling and a massive bang. Mm. That's one type of hearing protection. It's not the same hearing protection they will use if they want to protect themselves from the long-term sound because of a trumpet is behind them. It's a different hearing protection. But you need to give education and you need to give that choice for them to be able to make that decision at the right time. And so that's where I think we did the most most, where most of the changes have happened. It's a mixture of new technology, new better hearing protection, better education, better understanding, where it has really raised massively our compliance with hearing protection. And I, I use the word compliance. I don't really like to use the word compliance because they don't, they, don't, they don't wear hearing protection because they want to be compliant. They wear hearing protection because they want to keep their hearing for longer. Mm. That's, that's the reason why they're wearing it. It's not to be compliant. It's not to please us, it's to protect themselves. That's the reason why they're, here, they're wearing it. So we don't really use the word compliance as such. Um, I think yeah. it's, it's, I think that education piece is, is huge. And I think back to when I, when I was a teenager, I, wa I wanted to be loads of things when I was a kid, but 
I originally, when I was a young kid, wanted to be a journalist. Didn't happen. Uh, I suppose this is kind of journalism. We'll yes. say, we'll say I tick that box. Uh, um, and then, um, and then wanted to kind of work in theatre actually. Um, so my aim was to be a lighting technician. So um, wow, a good friend of mine, he, he very successful sound engineer. So he works quite heavily in London uh, musical theatre mostly. Um, and I worked with him for a while and um, my mum is, is fully deaf. My mum is completely deaf. She's got a conchocular implant, um, which is essentially like an operation in, in your skull mm. um, yeah. that connects to your ears. It's a fascinating bit of kit, uh, but you take that off. It's completely gone. Um, when I was younger, she was hard of hearing. And, and now, you know, most yeah. people that listen to this say no. Um, and I, I'm hard of hearing, so I wear a hearing aid every day. But even when I was younger, even though my mum was hard of hearing, I didn't, I didn't take this stuff seriously whatsoever. You know, I worked... Yeah. In the theatre, we were doing gigs every weekend at a local youth club. We were putting the PAs up. And I remember, you know, if we were to, if we, we thought something was wrong with the PA, we would, you know, go and put our ears r r quite close to the PA <laughs> and, and listen, yeah. to, listen for clicking and stuff like that. And it's yeah. such a, you know, when I think back to it now, I think, God, that must have been like 90-something decibel was just ploughing in my ear from about, you know, a centimetre's distance. Yeah. With no hearing protection even though fair play to my friend who who currently um like i said is, is quite successful he did advocate he was always wearing hearing protection and i just never listened to him i never listened to anyone when i was that age really if i'm honest yeah. but that education piece is huge and even now being a safety professional you know i've done noise a few times and and and, and actually just recently completed my nciq diploma and um the piece that they did in that around actually explaining the science behind it all, how your ear works and, yeah. and it doesn't actually, it's just fascinating. Like it, it basically collects the vibrations and then translate those vibrations to your brain. And then your brain translates that to actual sounds and words. It's like, well, it was just mind blowing. And, and it just, it makes everything in my opinion, you know, that kind of, without going too in-depth on stuff there is a fine line but given that level of education to people actually how how things work i think makes a massive difference when we're trying to get people to protect something yeah. if that makes sense no com completely completely we work with very good audiologists and we also had a partnership with a uh, research in audiology and that has been also fascinating what one thing has, someone has said to me once, we do not hear with our ear, we hear with our brain. Mm. And that was for me was a bit of a revelation. And that is really important for musicians. Musicians that have never trained, never rehearsed with hearing protection, it will take roughly two years of retraining to hear at the same level with ear protection because they need to create a new neurological pathways to be able to hear again with hearing protection. Crazy. Um, and, and, and so, love um, some, not a lot actually, unfortunately, love some new musicians, you know, but developing the career, train with hear protection. But you need to train during rehearsal, during concert, you need to train all the time with the same hearing protection to train your ear and train your brain to hear properly. Um, but two years to get those neurological pathways, that's what it would take to hear at the level of the ear, because we don't hear like you and me in a sense. A musician hears like things are so subtle, mm. so, so subtle. Mm. Um, but 
actually one of the criticism of uh, audiology and the pure tone test. So that's the standard test that everybody does in audiology. It's actually not refined enough for our musicians. Our musicians are, hear so much better. But actually, I've, I've got a quality of hearing which is well above the general population. And the benchmark, we measure them with, with the general population. And, and it's um, also the, one of the criticism of a pure tone test. The measure hearing problem of musicians is not hear loss. They have some hear loss. I'm not saying, I'm not denying that they have hear loss. They have hear loss. The measure issue, it's tinnitus and hyperacusis. So tinnitus is sound that is created, yeah. uh, no plays, I will say, in a, in a loop in their head. And hyperacusis is hypersensitivity to some frequencies. That's the major issue for musicians. Musicians suffer from a lot of hear damage, but hearing loss is not the top one. Wow. It's actually not the top one. And, and the only measurement we do is pure tone, which is actually hearing loss, which is not the major problem. So we really meet, here there's a total, there's a total gap, I will say. We miss the point. We absolutely miss the point uh, when it comes to musicians. Uh, I think the pure tone test is valid for people working in a factory, in an industry with a machine that is always at the same frequency, yeah. but it's a predictable noise. Mm. For musicians, pure tone tests has got a very limited value, I will say, to tell us what is the hearing problem. It's, it's, it's got limited value. So we are looking at different type of tests for them and things that would give us a better picture of what actually is happening. So if we know what's the level of hearing is, what's the problem is, then it's easier to adapt. Mm -hmm. One of the other findings that was really interesting, and, and there's a lot of research on that, is if you suffer tinnitus, which is a major hearing problem for musicians, tinnitus, hearing protection, PPE, increase your problem. It's so you could you could aggravate your hearing problem by wearing hearing protection. Wow. Again, it's like it's something that is specific to our industry. But how do we go around that? It's um, how do we uh, and how do we also because hearing is there is you no know, it's what make them earning their money. Mm. So you can imagine that disclosure of issues is not is not necessarily easy for them. They not necessarily want to disclose that they've got a hearing problem because they are worried it might jeopardize their, their, their job. Um, so again, having occupational health audiologists working in confidentiality, in total medical confidentiality, but moving on with a topic, finding better tools to assess them, is, is finding that right balance where they don't feel threatened by our, our research, so it's engaging with them, but at the same time, uh, protecting their employment. It, it, I'm getting better knowledge to be able to find the right solutions. It's, it's really getting that right balance. It's, it's challenging, but it's interesting, very interesting. I was going to touch on that point that you, you kind of mentioned there about like the, the, the attitudes from the musicians towards your work, like considering hearing, their hearing, like you say, is probably their biggest asset or one of their biggest yeah. assets. Um, and you're, you're potentially trying to protect their biggest asset. Like was, was the, the, the attitude kind of consistent in that they were like, on board was it was it varied some were fully on board some were still skeptical about it or, or, or what you know 
mean, it's a large group. It's, you know, we've got a lot of musicians and I think like any large group, you've got a very, very diverse attitude to it. Yeah. Um, some are, are in total denial, some are very engaged, some are very scientifically minded, some of them can't give a toss. It's really, I think you've got every attitude and every, um, it's, a, it's a large group of people. I don't think I could, I would not do them justice to, to make a general statement about what the attitude to it, it won't be fair. But we've got a group of very engaged musicians and that's, that's a nice bit because with them we can really progress and and they're very scientifically minded and they're really interesting about testing new products and and they challenge the manufacturers. It's quite funny, actually, mm. sometimes in meetings. <laughs> that, that's so, kind um, of important, isn't it? It's getting like it's, it's getting that, that that kind of core interest. It's, it's getting some people interested in it, even if they are a guinea pig in some some kind of hearing protection and they're saying like you're saying critique and manufacturer saying this doesn't work for me blah 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 yeah. um then the other musicians who are not so engaged at the time you know they, they will follow suit but it's just like yeah. it, it comes over time you've Completely. got to get that kind of interested party i don't think i think don't you that's quite important yeah i, I think it's it's a completely valuable in um it's the validity in saying that in terms of the wearing hearing protection. I think there's um, a peer pressure uh, effect. You know, now all everybody in my section is wearing hearing protection. I'm the only one not wearing it. Mm. And so they will feel more. And I think it's one of the reasons we've got an increase in wearing hearing protection to compare to 10 years ago, because more and more wear hearing protection. A new musician, younger generation tend to wear it younger musicians tend to wear it a lot more than the older generation and again they influence the older generation because like oh but she can play with her hair protection so maybe i could too you know and yeah. it's and that's peer pressure it's not maybe not peer pressure it's maybe not the right word but that's like social I think, social pressure annoying, yeah it? social pressure and social norms do yeah. change slowly and oh. that you know take the group a group the group of musicians together towards more protection i will say mm. i think i think you've got a, a, a very valid point i can't remember for the life of me what the report the research report was but um there was there was some kind of research basically into how we communicate and influence people how people how people are influenced and, yeah. and they, were, they were using the example of you know when you go to a hotel and it says like um save a tree use this towel um yeah. re reuse this towel save a tree they yeah. basically tested all of those kind types of fear they had save a tree uh, reuse your towel save the earth reuse your towel and then the other one was most people in this hotel reuse their towel and the most yeah. effective one was most people in this hotel yeah. reuse their towel so it was actually more social pressure as opposed Completely. to moral, environmental, whatever you want to call it, pressure, that was more effective. You know, it was that yeah. sense of, well, everyone else is doing it, I should do it. And I think yeah. that's obvious. You know, when I started in manufacturing and we would have, it was just this ongoing kind of joke, which was a, a kind of an interesting challenge for me as a young safety professional, but you would go on your forklift driving training and then mm. you would, you would finish, you get your certificate, you get your key and you would never drive the way that you would yeah. in in your training yeah. again, because if you did, you would have stuck out like a sore thumb. So you're supposed to enter a rack in when basically whenever you move the forks, you should put the handbrake on. 
right? Yeah. But you will, you will inevitably be the slowest forklift driver in that whole warehouse because no one else is doing it. You know, yeah. get to the racking, stop with a forks distance, put your handbrake on, raise the forks, handbrake yeah. off, go into the racking, handbrake on, lift the pallet, handbrake off. It, it's just like you would be so slow. So nobody does that. But yeah. if it's social pressure, if you're that one person that does that, you stick out like a sore thumb, you then become the slowest forklift driver, then the manager yeah. saying, why are you so slow? And it's yeah. all of this stuff is huge. And I think that is very yeah. similar in a way, but much more technical from your point of view, is that the noise the, the noise and the sound stuff is much more technical mm. than that, but it's, it's all the same stuff. And I, I think you're right. Yeah. I think that social pressure as younger generations come up, and it, it's interesting you say that I went to a gig with, um, my, my wife, my father-in-law and, and her brother and the, my, my wife's family are all musicians, like all of them, like just geniuses when it comes to music. And um, we went to watch this um, like funk band basically in London and Sherry's brother got, got hearing protection out, puts his hearing protection in, no question, just like natural. The second we walk through the door, puts it on. Did, did me, my wife or her dad do that? No didn't even have any on me and I'm a, I'm a trained professional that knows how damaging this I'm bloody hard of hearing I, I can't fix what and it's just I, I looked at I remember looking at Theo and just saying like and when we went for a pint afterwards I said you know what fair play mate like I don't see anyone doing that and to see somebody who's younger doing that it made me feel like oh Jesus I should be wearing hearing protection actually it does work it really does work like this just changes just slow and that gradual change isn't it yeah, no, completely. No, completely. I completely agree. It's uh, it's gradual. But in some time, the law cannot. No, in some time, we complain. The law is like wait for all our musicians are uh, from a different generation, and it will take twenty years. Mm, a bit too slower. Well, that that was actually going to be my last question to you. Is that do do you think that at the kind of at the end of this, uh, when when you've kind of got maybe you're in the position to now, but you is it should the kind of research and the work that you've done or is it be, being given to the regulator does the noise at work regs need to change do they need to evolve yeah um, but and I, I will not engage the oppressed view that's my personal view on that definitely yeah. definitely i think it absolutely need to change uh, it needs to change because when you think of the noise at work regulation was built on evidence um from the 1970s of very sound very good research uh, done mainly in manufacturing and milling in Ireland was one of the biggest research that informed um, informed uh, the, the, the law as we have it now you know the 85 87 the peak value and so on um, and that was informed by research that is completely outdated and one of the sorts of very interesting fact the LC peak we have it as the LC peak because at the time when the law was made, that was the way the the uh, it was the way that uh, peak sound was monitored because the you know it was like um, a little uh, it was a pressure gauge. Yeah, yeah. No, now we measure things digitally. Hmm. So LC peak could be a lot be improved using a different measurement to measure peak sounds. Because digitally we can, but at the time when law was made, we didn't have that capacity. Technology, yeah. But technology. The other thing is the law was made for manufacturing. The reality is that musicians and singers 
experience sound very differently. And that is now proven in like um, uh, psychoacoustic. There's a lot of research in psychology and acoustics and, and the relationship to psychology and acoustic. One thing, you know, in terms of, of fact, why a soprano, which we've measured a soprano, on LEQ eight hours, a soprano that sings on a daily, eat 92 dB LEQ. It, it's super loud. It's super loud. And no, the, the dosimeters in our shoulder, so that's not what she projects. She projects even more. That's what the dosimeters on the side. Voice, isn't it? A soprano is, is voice. Yeah, it's a voice. And, and then so, how, many, how many decibels? 92, 92 uh, LEQ of eight hours, a soprano. Jesus Christ. That's, that's loud. That's amazing. When, when you measure hearing of singers, and I'm talking about singers that are in the 50s and the 60s, so no, not new singers, singers that have been singing for 40 years at that level. Wow. And if you look at the modeling that was done in manufacturing, someone that has been exposed to 92 dB for 30 years, she should be yeah. deaf. Yeah, yeah, definitely. She should be deaf. But she's not. She's not. She's got hearing. It's better quality than the general population. Wow. That's amazing. And, and we've got a lot of data on that. So that's, for me, it's a proof that it's like there's something about the science behind sound and the sound we produce as, as singers or as musicians that has got a different impact than the machine. Yeah. And it's very likely, and again, it's, it's love science. There's nothing we know now that we didn't know in the 80s when the law was made, in the 90s. Um, and there's still love mystery. There's nothing that we still don't know. Mm. Um, and, and the law doesn't allow us for that. It's just, um, it's too black and white. It's mm. absolutely too much black and white. I know legal, legal needs to be black and white. You should not leave too much room for interpretation. But... When it, when it comes to, to sound and the artistic side, so music, I'm talking non-amplified music, uh, because that's a different story when you go on amplification, and singing, the fact that the law applies to them, it's ill-fitted. Mm. It doesn't fit with the scientific reality of the sound they produce and the, the, the damage they have. It's, it, the model that we, we use does not work for them. It absolutely does not work. So therefore, we need to change that, in my view. The HSC is not willing, um, for different reasons. I'm an ex-regulator, and I do like my colleague from the HSC, partially because they don't have the resources for it, mm. as simple as that. They don't have enough people um, to work on things like this. And most of the acquisitions working for the HSC come from manufacturing. So no, it's, not all, it's not most, all of them, all the acquisitions and the audiologists that work for the HSC are trained from a manufacturing point of view. They know nothing about the art. Wow. It's, it's not, it's, they're not educated to be able to get, a, to get a view on that. So it's like a, a forgotten industry from the, from the perspective of the regulator then, really? To, to, yeah, to... but also... Yeah, no, completely. It, it's it's not. Um, it's a forgotten industry. It's also, you know, in terms of numbers, we're not massive. I will mm. say we're a bit of a niche industry. It's interesting because when I went to that that gig I was talking about a minute ago, the the, the musician that was do he was American, but he was saying that 
before he came over to London, he, he basically Googled the, the people's occupation statistics. And it was something like 85% of London is, is in some form of creative role. Yeah. 85% of yeah. London, like that, I just blew my mind. I didn't stop talking about yeah. it, like the two hours train home. I was just like, it's 85%. Like I thought create the creative industry was essentially dying. Do you know what I mean? When I was a kid, yeah. it was gigs all over the place and now there's nothing, but it's 85% of one of the most populated cities in the world is, is creative industry. That's fascinating. So this is yeah. a huge part of what we do, you know, especially yeah. in London. No, no, completely. So uh, no, I'm not seeing any, I'm not optimistic in terms of you know, guidance or legal change to help us in our industry. I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Lack of resources, lack of interest. Um, the science, as I say, has moved on, but maybe not moved on enough to get final responses, final decisive. What we know, what the science have told us so far is um, our hearing is different depending on the where the sound come from. If the sound come from our voice, if it come from our own instruments, we would have a different type of hearing reaction. But we have not necessarily, can I say, we not necessarily put our fingers on what is different, what create that difference. Yeah. And I think it's maybe the science need to move on to to be able to influence better the legal framework. At the moment, we're not there yet. We're not there yet. There's a lot of evidence saying that the current model does not fit our industry, but there's not enough evidence like which model would fit, in a sense. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Fascinating. So, yeah, this is where we are at. Wow. But there's a very, very interesting group of academics and that form the group that they meet a few times a year from a lot of different universities. Um, I've been going to their meetings. It's fascinating to where they gathered all the latest research, the latest thinking about it. Um, and um, hopefully now is keeping in touch with groups like this that will allow us to, uh, as a professional, to influence the regulator at the right time. I've already, of course, you can imagine, I've approached my colleagues from the HS a few times. I've pestered them a bit um, and I had a fascinating conversation with them. And, and I, I can also see where they come from. You know, they don't have that level of expertise um, and that money, that time. Uh, the HSE has been super cut for the last 10 years. I think they don't do 30% what they were like 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, so we have to be also realistic about um, how the regulator can sometimes support supporters. I think it may have to come from us ourselves. I mean, the industry has to create their own, their own uh, guidance and so on. But again, it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge. Again, another one, but yeah. we'll get there one day. <laughs> One day, right? I'm, well, I'm, I need some bloody lunch. I'm starving. Yeah, so, and I need to. Yeah, we've been chatting for a long time. Yeah, it's been fascinating. If I'm honest, I could <laughs> go on for at least another couple of hours, uh, but but let's not do that because you've probably got a lot, <laughs> uh, and I, I I don't. But you know, but that's absolutely fascinating, Tommy. Thank you very much for coming on and and just the, the amount of insights, like insight into the courts and the science and every, everything. That's one of. To, to date, one of the favourite conversations I've had on this podcast. Thank oh, you thank you. Much. A real pleasure to chat with you too. A real pleasure. I'm a bit of a, I'm a passionate on things, so I'd like to share that passion. passion <laughs> good, passion is good. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dominique. 
such some like absolute amazing work that's going on there and, and kind of work that I think genuinely sets the tone for the future of how we manage not just noise at work or sound at work as, as Dominique and her colleagues call it but pretty much like everything it's quite interesting to a kind of ask Dominique you know is the noise at work regs kind of outdated then is it missing quite a big part of the of the industry and you know it was a pretty Granted, it was, it was just Dominique's opinion and not, not kind of, she wasn't representing the Royal Opera House at that point, but, you know, she quite clearly said, I think it is outdated. Um, so that was an interesting point. And I think that'll end up probably setting the tone for a lot of other reviews, maybe, if we ever do see that review come along. So watch this space. Maybe this has kind of set in motion something. Hmm. Anyway, if you're new here, um, no, not if you're new here, that's the beginning. If you enjoyed that podcast, you listen on iTunes, please give us a rate and review. It really helps us do the magic with the algorithm, thingamajiggy, and get into other people's ears. Um, if you listen on Spotify, hit the follow button and all that malarkey. If you think of one person that, that you think would enjoy this podcast or benefit from this episode, then please share it with them. And if you do any of that stuff, kind of let us know, tag it in it, screenshot it. Um, if you watch on YouTube, all of our social medias are coming on the pod on the screen now um yeah really fucking lost my mojo man but if you listen on the podcast it's safety rebranded on twitter i've just realized today that i've been saying rebranded safety for our twitter handle and that's like completely incorrect it's actually safety rebranded um because we couldn't get rebranding safety because it was too many letters anyway rebrand safety rebranding and then on linkedin rebranding safety and on facebook rebranding safety come and chat love to hear from you otherwise i'll catch you in the next podcast safe